Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is podcast episode 64 in the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast series. So if you came looking for episode 65, you're going to have to wait a week. But stick around. We're going to talk about some pretty cool things. The last two weeks, I've spent my Friday and Saturday inside a convention center at the fly fishing show not a fly fishing show but the fly fishing show there's a lot of really good fly fishing expositions and activities out there this time of year but uh, i'm talking about the fly fishing show that one that kicked off in denver a few weeks back and it's going to culminate in march in lancaster pennsylvania but i went to the show in marlboro massachusetts which is about 45 miles down the road from me where i live in the north shore and I went to Edison, New Jersey, which was four and a half hours to get down there in the middle of the night, and then about five and a half hours getting back in a rainstorm. Not just a rainstorm, but a rainstorm in warm enough weather that all of the snow that was still standing was melting and flooding the roads. And so half of the lanes were closed down and just made for a delightful drive after being on my feet for the previous 48 hours. But that doesn't tarnish my memories of being at the fly fishing show. I had two great weekends. At both shows, I split my time from helping out at the VitaVu booth and walking around kind of doing my thing, touching base with old friends, meeting people I've only communicated with online, and making contacts for new content on casting across. And I find that to be a really good split for me because I don't want to bother people for two days straight by hanging out and loitering around their booth and driving away potentially paying customers it's a really good fit for me to be able to spend some time being productive and being helpful and engaging people in a very different way than i would if i was just walking around and it's cool and it's nice to kind of have a spot to camp out in and have people come by and and say hi as well so that's kind of the approach that i took at both shows and it's really worked well for the last few years to be able to do that But I was able to spend a lot of time walking around and kind of observing and seeing the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. It was a visit to the fly fishing show that really pushed casting across kind of in my brain to get going. And so this holds a really special place in my heart. And uh, it's a great time where I get to see people that I maybe only see that time of year. Lots of contact on social media, lots of contact online, but then face-to-face, shake a hand, sit and talk for a while. It might only happen in Edison, New Jersey. So 
there. A great set of weekends for me. It'd be awesome to go to other shows, and I've been to the one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania before, because they all have their different flavor. They all have different vendors, exhibitors, speakers, things like that. But those are the two that I go to, and after that, I start to think I'm spending more time doing fishing stuff that isn't fishing. So it's a pretty good balance. It's not to say I'm not going to go to other local, smaller shows, but those are the two stops on the Fly Fishing Show Tour that I go to. I had some observations, and I'm always kind of thinking about things from a few different angles. And the first thing, and really just to kind of dive into the deep end of it, is that I saw a very diverse group of people at the Fly Fishing Show. Now, what I didn't see is maybe what some people want to see, both in fly fishing and in culture, and that's in any given time in a panoramic picture that you can check off every possible permutation of demographic studies that's out there. So men and women of every ethnicity, of every size, of every age, of every socioeconomic status, of every political leaning, all of those things. I'm sure you had a great cross-section of all of the things I just mentioned, but it wasn't like you saw a United Nations picture or something like that. But that's not really what we're going for. We're just going for a situation where everyone who wants to do this, who's interested in doing it, feels welcome and feels accepted and feels like they're part of the community. Now, like I said, I think that maybe there's some people that don't have that approach. They do have the quota. I don't. I know that's not the, the point. The point is not to establish a quota. The point of a, a program, an initiative like that, is not to set turnstiles at fly fishing shows and at river put-ins where it's got to be one from line A and one from line B, and if it's not, then we're going to hold up the line until another woman passes through and then another guy can go fishing. I know that's not what being, is being done. I know the intention is virtuous. But truly, if we were get underneath not just that initiative, but other initiatives, you know, what are we looking for? And this might play my worldview hand a little bit, but I'm all about a quality of opportunity, not a quality of outcome. I really believe that what we need to do is foster an environment, not just in fly fishing, but in everything else where if somebody wants to do something, they have the opportunity to do that. And I do believe that fly fishing is going out of its way to kind of right some past wrongs, which aren't necessarily along gender lines. I think it's more a socioeconomic issue, to be totally frank, and I'll flesh that out in a second. But I think that, especially at the fly fishing show and so many trout unlimited activities and so many, uh, again, initiatives that are being put forth either incredibly blatantly or even just in marketing by fly fishing companies, it portrays an image that all are welcome here. Now, is that easy for me, middle class white guy to say? Maybe. But these are things I think about because I think I, I care about them. And I know others who are not of my demographic that see things differently and having those conversations and trying to get their perspectives, it seems like we're, we're moving in the right direction. And again, like I was saying, I think that the socioeconomic factor is really the bigger point of division and at times derision within fly fishing, not necessarily presently, but certainly 20, 30 years ago. When you look back into the 80s and the 90s, and especially the whole river runs through it thing, you had a lot of upper middle class white guys 
in their 40s, 50s, and 60s get into fly fishing. And so that perpetuated a stereotype that that's the demographic that fly fishing is for. Now, to be totally fair, you go to the fly fishing show, and especially on Friday morning, that's the demographic that's present. But you're not going to turn those people away, are you? I mean, you, you can't do that. That would be counterintuitive to being inclusive and to being tolerant and to all of those things. That's just the reality of it. But then as that day goes on, and certainly when Saturday morning kicks in, you see a whole lot more diversity. You see a lot more women. You see a lot more children. You see people of middle class and lower middle class and even lower classes. And is that something where I'm checking their W-2s and figuring out what they're making? That's just our, the way our brains work. And anyone who tells you that your brain doesn't work that way and that we're not constantly kind of observing how people act and interact with us, it's a lie. And there's nothing wrong with that. I had some fantastic conversations. One of the best conversations I had was with a guy who walked up to me, sweatsuit, Crocs, which probably could have been a millionaire. I don't know. Do millionaires wear Crocs? I'm not one, so I couldn't tell you. But he walks up to me and he goes, man, what's with fly fishing? And we're at the fly fishing show, mind you. And I said, excuse me? He goes, do you guys even keep any of your fish? And this guy was a big dude. I mean, he's probably six foot, 350 pounds, and in his gray sweatsuit and his Crocs, and I'm like, so do you, you don't fly fish? He goes, no, I'm just checking it out for the day. I'm trying to figure out what this is all about. I, I like to catch fish, and I like to eat fish, but it sounds like everybody around here is not catching fish and keeping them. And so we talked about it, and two very different worlds. We were different ethnicities. We were from different parts of the country, but it was awesome. It was a, a great interaction, and I had lots of those throughout the day. And just from walking around and seeing who's hanging out in booths and seeing who's touching fly rods and seeing who's sitting in different classes, it was a lot of diversity. Is it where it needs to be? Maybe not. But do we have an environment where it's getting to the point where no one's going to feel uncomfortable or awkward walking around that place? I think we're getting there. I saw a lot of people having a good time. I didn't see a whole lot of grumpy people. And there's something to be said for that. Just like my comments earlier, you know what? We're programmed to see that. We are. It's in our brains. We are social creatures created to be in community with one another. And so we can pick up on when people are grumpy and we can pick up on there's general good vibes. And so I was getting a lot of good vibes the four days I was at the fly fishing show. Something else that I think factors into what I've been talking about is kind of the second observation. And it is the accessibility of having what you not just need, but what you want in fly fishing. And I think this has also helped with the different demographics entering the sport. And this has very little to do with uh, gender. This has very little to do with age or anything like that, like ethnicity. This has everything to do with finances, which may very well open up a family into buying more than one fly rod or more than one set of waders. And so now all of a sudden you don't just have one spouse fishing, but you have a second spouse fishing because they're able to afford it. And that comes down to the quality of the economically minded gear. You see it across the board. I held a $119 wading boot that blows away the $200 wading boots that I had 10 years ago. There's a pair of zipper front waders, which I'm not a huge zipper front waiter fan, although I haven't worn them just in theory. I'm not sure about them, but my mind could change, especially as I get older, I guess. But they were cheaper than 
some of the waders I bought, they had very few features on them. And, and things are moving at such an amazing speed with not just technology, but with the market dictating the demand for quality gear. So consequently, really good stuff is getting in people's hands and you don't need to have a six-figure salary. Fly rods are a great example. And I know I talked about fly rods a lot a few weeks ago, but some of the fly rods that are coming in at that $350 to $450 price point are just excellent tools. I'm not an expert caster. I think I'm an experienced caster. I cast a lot of my own fly rods. I cast a lot of other fly rods. And there is a noticeable uptick in the quality of those mid-level fly rods. There's some really budget fly rods that are incredibly accurate and responsive and well-built. And that just goes to show how fly fishing manufacturers and companies and the industry kind of in general is really opening up all sorts of doors for people across the socioeconomic strata to get involved and do it at more than just a foot-in-the-door, toe-in-the-water level. You're able to get the good stuff at a very reasonable price and walking around and seeing that that's really the bulk of what people have to offer. The high-end stuff is kind of on one side of the bell curve. The real budget stuff is on the other side of the bell curve for most of these dealers and manufacturers. But the majority of what's being offered and what's being made and even what's being promoted and even companies that have multiple wings of their, their brands, what's really being promoted is that middle part of the bell curve, that economic stuff. And so I think that is another driving force in opening up the diversity. And so if you're a new fly fisher, regardless of if you fall out of that upper middle class Caucasian male demographic or not, then you're able to get into good stuff pretty cheap. And if this is something you've been doing, you're able to update and upgrade your gear and you're maybe even able to bring more people in your family. And so you're able to introduce younger anglers to fly fishing and get them their own gear, not just give them your hand-me-downs. You're able to introduce, again, your spouse and it just opens doors. And that's a great example of kind of increasing opportunity for all sorts of people to get into it. And so I think that is maybe even in some ways more than some of the initiatives creating opportunities for more anglers and different anglers from different demographics to get involved in fly fishing. My third observation kind of falls in line in the same vein of what I've been talking about, which has to do with approachability. Now, I know the term fly fishing celebrity gets a lot of derision and fun poked at it in social media, and I get it, but what are you going to call them? Notable fly fisher? Fly fishers that you are aware of? I mean, there's no good, concise way of saying people who you're coming to see. And you might say, I don't go to see people. Well, guess what? Most people do. Most people go to talk to the person that wrote the book. Most people go to listen to the seminar. Most people go to watch the casting demonstration or the fly tying demonstration. And guess what? They're not going to watch you. They're not going to watch me. They're going to watch somebody who really knows what they're doing. And so is celebrity a great word? It might be as good as we're going to get. So it is what it is. So if you don't like that word, then forget the word exists and understand the spirit under the word. But those people 
are incredibly approachable. And you say, well, of course, because they're just people. And yeah, but that's the thing. Not in every sphere of society are people who have some sort of ascribed status approachable. There, There is something in our heads where when you get 15 minutes of fame or 15 years of fame, that sometimes that makes an us and them category distinction in people's minds. I didn't see that in fly fishing. Or that you give people a limited opportunity. There was three pretty well-known fly fishers. I mean, you know, lots and lots and lots of followers on social media for whatever that's worth. And genuine people that were staged kind of near me where I was camped out at the Vitavu booth. And as I kind of walked around, grabbed my drinks of water, just stretched my legs from me in the booth, they were always talking to somebody. They were always engaged in conversation. They always had a smile on their face. Could some of that be artificial and faked and just keeping it together for 72 strong hours so you can then, you know, just breathe this giant exhale and say, whew, I towed the company line and I made us look better? Maybe. That's that's obviously an explanation. But I think it was pretty genuine. There's some kind of high-level observations from the fly fishing show. I was paying attention to all sorts of different stuff. It's just a really fascinating people watching and really fascinating shopping and analysis of what's happening in fly fishing. I am most impressed by the people that found a niche, something small, one little product or one little kind of product, and they have their booth and they have their table and they're selling their hearts out. And you know it's not to get rich. You know it's because this is what they want to be doing. And that is awesome to me, to be able to have that conversation, hear a good sales pitch. There's something I absolutely love about a good sales pitch, especially when you can tell that it's real, that this isn't them just trying to hawk the knives that they bought off of the back of a truck or something like that. When they have put their heart and soul into this little product, whatever it might be, sometimes fitting in the palm of your hand and retailing for $9.95 or something like that. And these people are really going out of their way to share what they have with people because they know that it's helped them fly fish and they want to help you fly fish. So that's great. There's, like I said, still some grumpy people out there, which I just don't get. If you're going to be grumpy by going to the fly fishing show or by paying for a booth at the fly fishing show, why would you do it? Stay home and be grumpy. Let someone happy have your spot. Now, everyone's allowed to have a bad hour or a bad day. I get it. And so I can't cast judgment on that, but I saw some grumpy people. Mostly everyone was in good spirits. Saw some awesome products, uh, things that I don't want to just mention briefly. I want to give full articles on castingacross.com. I want to give full podcasts to some companies that I've known of but have had more exposure to and be able to spend more time, have more conversations with. I've got a stack of business cards on the desk next to me of people I'm going to be talking to and emailing and working on stuff mostly for my enjoyment, but some of that's going to trickle down to casting across, both from the podcast and from the articles. And I never talk about anything or write about something that I don't believe in. And so for me to kind of pass this on to you as the audience, I am getting opportunities to see these things in the hands of the people that designed them or manufactured them. And it enriches my experience with a fly rod or with a feather that's used for fly tying or anything in between. And so it's really cool for me and it it gives me a 
wider frame of reference when I write or when I speak about things. Because again, I'm not going to be interviewing these people on the microphone. There's other people that are doing that. And I try at times when I write these articles to say, if you want to hear this person, if you want to hear their voice and hear their passion about their product or their lodge or the way that they tie flies, then go listen to this podcast by this great podcast that does interviews. But that's not my shtick. I do other things. I do what you just listened to for the last 20 minutes. And so I'm going to transition out of that into the next thing. Two articles this week, as per usual. The first one is called The Best Small Stream Bass Fly Rods. It's not a list of the fly rods I recommend. It is the qualities I look for in a small creek, small river, warm water fly rod. If you're going to seriously pursue fish, and I'm not talking about decking yourself out in camo and crawling along the bank so you can catch a 12-inch rock bass. I'm saying, you know, you put in thought into it. If you can pick fly rod A or fly rod B, why would you choose one or the other? Like trout fishing, like striped bass fishing, you can get away with using a lot of different gear. But if you're just relocated and there's a medium-sized warm water river that you're going to be fishing in a lot, you know what? Maybe it's worth going out and getting a rod that can do exactly what you need to do. Some wind-resistant flies, some slightly heavier flies, maybe up against some brush. So I talk about some of the things that I look for when I'm picking a rod out of the quiver or in times past where I have bought a rod for that type of warm water fishing. So the best small stream bass fly rods, which if you've been reading Casting Cross for a while, you know that some of the most popular stuff on the website is the small trout stream fly rod article. So this is a little bit of a change of pace within the same vein. Wednesday's article is called Fly Fishing's Little Things, the Loon Rogue Zinger. I wrote an article about a zinger, but it's a zinger that I like. And it comes down to this. It's a $12 zinger. You can buy a $5 zinger all day long, but it's going to break or it's going to fall off your vest, or it's going to put a hole in your shirt, or something like that. This one's $12, and I think it's worth the seven extra bucks to have something that is no fuss, no worries, solid, and just a nicer piece of gear. And so you can actually take the formula of this article and apply it to a lot of different things in fly fishing and in life. But the zinger is something that we take for granted until the thing breaks and your $100 nippers are nowhere to be found, and nobody wants that. This week's recommendation on the podcast are Ghost Tech Strike Indicators. I encountered the Ghost Tech Strike Indicator while I was at the Marlboro Fishing Show, and they always had a crowd of people in front of them there, and they always had a crowd of people in front of them at Edison also. But the best way to describe Ghost Tech Strike Indicators are little plastic bubbles in kind of like a three-leaf clover pattern with a screw in the middle. And you can use one or two or three of these little little clovers to create differing buoyancy in your strike indicator. So one for slower water, three for faster water, and they come in white and they come in colored and you can flip the colored ones over and they're white on the underside so you can do that. They are built to flutter down to the water they're not going to splash. And so if you're nymphing still water, I can really see the application for using these. Additionally, the ability to change the buoyancy 
of your strike indicator to really make it high floating or really keeping it almost subtle, probably riding right in the film of the water if you have a heavier flyer, faster water. That's a really cool concept. So totally honest, haven't fished them yet. I've played with them. They had a little tub of water and I dropped it in there and I poked at it and I saw how it reacted. And I'm interested and intrigued in giving these a shot on some of the more pressured waters and some of the slower rivers that we have here in northeastern Massachusetts where a splashing strike indicator for fish that might not be feeding at the bottom but only a few feet down could potentially put them down. So I saw some immediate applications to the Ghost Tech strike indicators as soon as I looked at them. And uh, I have a package of them. I'm going to give them a whirl. But I would suggest that if you're somebody who is not happy with your current strike indicator situation or you like to have a bunch of different options, head to their website. It is ghosttechsi.com, G-H-O-S-T-E-C-H-S-I.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.